Welcome to Tech Culture Interrupted, NCWIT's podcast on building more inclusive tech cultures that foster diverse participation. My name is Dr. Catherine Ashcraft, and I'm the Director of Research here at NCWIT. And my name is Dr. Brad McLean. I'm the Director of Corporate Research at NCWIT. Today's episode is about COVID and the identity distance trap. And our special guest today is Mary Fairchild, Global Director of Diversity and Inclusion at F5. It's so good to have you here, Mary. Good to be here. I'm excited to talk about the identity distance trap today. Thank you. And to set up the content for today's conversation, we are, in fact, in the middle of the COVID pandemic here at the end of May 2020. And as appropriate due to social isolation, Mary is chiming in from a remote studio in Seattle, and we are distanced across the room in Boulder, Colorado. And so it's no coincidence that social isolation and working remotely in tech is the very context of this podcast that we should start with. So one of the things I've been noticing or hearing a lot about is this, uh, we're all in this together vibe, right? And while on one hand, I get that, and I think that's kind of true and important to recognize, it also kind of bugs me, right? It's because it doesn't really capture, there's something wrong, there's something missing from that. And so, and one of the things, of course, that is missing is that people are experiencing this very differently, especially given people who are marginalized by race, class, language, other kinds of marginalized identities. For example, Latinx employees are nearly twice as likely as whites to have lost their jobs amid the coronavirus shutdown, according to a Washington Post poll. Some 61% of Hispanic Americans and 44% of Black Americans said in March and April that they or someone in their household had experienced a job or wage loss due to the coronavirus outbreak, compared with 38% of white Americans, according to a Pew Research Center survey. There are other, obviously, groups of um, people with disabilities or LGBTQ folks or other kinds of um, identity categories that are experiencing this pandemic very differently. Absolutely true. We're not experiencing it all in the same way. But in a different sense, there is this feeling that we are in the same boat in, in some ways. In the tech workplace, we're changing the way that we work. We're working remotely, more of us, uh, and more often. Uh, we're having to have more flexible schedules. We're blurring the boundaries between our professional and our personal identities. These things are challenges, but perhaps they could be hidden opportunities as well. But I wonder, though, are we really changing the way that we're working? Is this going to be a temporary situation? that we've changed, or is it going to last? Right. What will stick, you know, after this is done? Do we actually go back to a normal, uh, the way that we're we're hearing now that the normal will be a new normal when we finally go back? All these things working remotely, they are potentially great difficulties and challenges. But are there also hidden opportunities? And that's what we'll be diving into today. But first, a thought experiment. We'd like to take this social isolation idea to an extreme and ask the question, because the virus experience is a new kind of isolating experience for majority group members in tech, might it be an opportunity for them to experience at least a bit of the everyday isolation experiences that many minority groups in tech face every day? Instead of being trapped in our homes in social isolation and doing our jobs remotely through the separation of physical distance, 
Pretend instead we are trapped in our own skins in social isolation, a separation of identity distance, be it gender, race, ethnicity, age, or ability, etc. This identity distance trap was already the case for many people even before COVID, right? The difference is that due to COVID, the majority group in tech is having a modified version of an exclusion and isolation experience too. So thinking of COVID as a surrogate isolation experience again, you know, my question is, do these types of things really work? Majority members having simulated minority-like experiences. You know, I've heard of programs like this from many corporations and organizations working in diversity and inclusion that try to give majority group members that kind of experience, if only for a short time, maybe attending a conference that's primarily attended by women and, and the men go there uh, and have that feeling of being a minority. What's that like? They come back, they unpack it. But does it really work? Yeah, I think that's such a great and important question. Um, and we found uh, a lot of insights and comments about this in our um, study of male allies, actually, in tech. And we did a study where we interviewed people who identified as men who were advocating for gender diversity kinds of efforts and uh, talking about what shaped their thinking. And they often referenced these kinds of activities where there are instances where they were a a minority in a majority group situation, they suddenly maybe found themselves that way, whether it was the only man at a women in computing conference or um, being a different kind of um, minority. But it was always a temporary experience, but they did talk about the profound effect it had on shaping their thinking as limited as it was. But I definitely think there are some limitations to those experiences. And I think, Mary, you have um, some experience with that as well. Yeah, I would say that one of the things that stands out for me and the limitations is the power dynamics are still in existence even when you're experiencing this um, other feeling. So being a man at a women's conference or whatever, you there's still the you still walk away with with the same power dynamics occurring during that, and and that's that's different. That has an impact on um, how you walk in that space when you um, have that feeling. And I think um, the, the other limitation is how intentional are we being with it? And I think it's interesting that even though we know it will end, we're still experiencing fatigue of being isolated already. So this has been really hard for people to experience it, even for the limited time that's happening. And I found that interesting. Yeah, and I've also noticed that people have um, maybe been surprised at how much they miss each other. You know, I complain about going to work and what goes on there and the different personalities that happen. But uh, uh, it's also true that when we don't have that, when we're working from home and we don't get to see each other, I think there's that social isolation effect is that we do miss each other even perhaps the people we didn't really like that much to begin with. <laughs> That's true. And we won't name any names here, but I get that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I do also think there's limitations in terms of what we are experiencing right now is very different depending on how you went into this. Um, so those in the majority group are experiencing it differently because of that identity. And, um, and we have to recognize that as well. Yeah, and I think those limitations are really important to think about at the very outset because no matter what kinds of insights you can get from a simulated experience, it is always limited and you have the luxury of going back to the so-called normal world or, you, as you say, you come into it with not depleted resources already. Yeah, the temporariness of a physical distance 
trap, which is we can close that physical distance when the virus goes away and, and we, we find ourselves returning to work. An identity distance, you you can't. It's part of who you are. And so it's not something that will stop or, or end. You're not going to stop being who you are. The best we can hope for is to make a more inclusive culture so the experiences of being who we are um, are different at work. You know, I was just thinking, I hadn't thought of this before, but I was just thinking about an experience we did put on with like a VR and um, we allowed um, through CEO Action, um, they have their unconscious bias bus that has virtual reality and we had um, some of our employees go through it. And um, afterwards, I made sure to walk everyone from the bus back to the office um, and they did go through in like batches, so small groups. And that that conversation that took place in debriefing what was that like was hugely important in how it had an impact or did not. Some folks didn't have much to say, but some did. And one of the things that stands out to me is there was, you know, one individual who said, it just doesn't seem like that's very real. I just don't think that that experience I just had happens in real life anymore. And so there's that intentionality and that resistance to it and, you know, the power dynamic or the privilege that she was experiencing that she could turn a blind eye to that that is happening in real life um, still the same. And I think that's one of the limitations there. Yeah. Could you describe to us what kind of experience did they have in that bus that they were reflecting upon? Yeah, they had a, a VR set you would put on. And so the uh, specific experience was you were a Latinx individual in a high-end retail store. And you were trying to get the attention of the shopkeeper there who then um, did some microaggression type um, activities towards you in terms of, are you sure you can afford it? Things of that sort. So um, something I think you, uh, I would have thought, would not have caused debate that that's actually something that happens. But it did, and I think that the conversation afterwards was just the key to, like, unlocking the entire thing. And it sounds like you did an impromptu conversation during the walk back. What kind of questions did you ask? I asked, how was that for you? Would you recommend this to other people? Um, what's changed for you? And a lot of people just, meh, meh. But um, I got two ends of the extreme that I brought back with me. One was a, the one I just described of somebody still sort of resistant to the experience as being a truth. And then the other person was actually someone who said, you know, I've, I'm new um, to the region. I'm new to the country, um, the area I grew up in and the area I've lived in most of my life. We haven't experienced these types of cultural issues. And um, at the same time, she said, hey, I, re I recognized myself in some of the simulations that I saw there. And um, she said to me, I have been withholding my son from one of the neighbor children because I thought their family wasn't really a family I wanted him to associate with. And now I recognize that it's my bias that was coming into play there and that that wasn't based on anything factual. And so it just it kind of hit her at the right time and at the right moment to open her eyes. Um, and and I'm. And I think that the the, conver the conversation cut both ways, right? It gave me an opportunity to help them process, but it also helped me like keep my resilience up to the effort. Because after I heard that, I was like, one person, that was worth it. <laughs> if one person got impacted that much, 
that's worth it. Yeah, you know, that may resonates very, very much with the research that I do and bringing it back to COVID, this idea of intentionality, an important component of it is this reflection, this meaning making through discourse, right? You asking them questions on the walk back was part of the experience when they had thought the experience was over. The VR was done, the bus was gone, we're walking back to our real lives and we're reflecting and making meaning and sharing stories about it. You know, this kind of meaning making is necessary during COVID here to understand what we're experiencing and what others are experiencing differently. You know, and if we don't do that, if we don't have that kind of reflective intentionality, I don't think we can use our COVID experiences to create more inclusive cultures when we return to work. Maybe that's one of the biggest takeaways of this experience. Yeah, I was just going to say that I think that is the key takeaway here is those two components, right? Reflection and intentionality combined with the simulated experience because the simulated experience oftentimes won't be enough and people won't be thinking through it in the ways that they could. I think one of the interesting points about it, too, what everyone is experiencing right now is that we have a, a, a newfound common language and understanding. So I'm able to give sort of metaphors to people who about this experience and compare it like we're doing today. And that um, helps light up their brain a little bit in a different way to to gain that empathy and understanding of what is it like to be in the minority group. So I'm a parent, and I was telling somebody I've been given a lot of grace lately for coming in late to a meeting or maybe just being a little harried or not having myself all put together, if you will. And that kind of grace is given to me because everyone knows what I'm going through and understanding it. And I was able the other day to just say to a team member of mine, what if we extended that grace to some of our um, F5 employees who are currently um, burdened with the events going on in the world right now against black African-Americans and the, um, what that they must be carrying into the meetings that they're in and what kind of grace could we extend to them the same way you've been extending grace to me. And I think that that really helped to kind of bridge a, a gap that was there before. That That's interesting. That's the uh, appreciation, recognition of our intersectional identities, things that we're bringing in with us. What is that common language that you refer to? Can you give an example of what you are thinking of? Yeah, it's interesting to me. It's like it's less specific language, but more just the the calling up of this experience that they've had with me and what this has been like together and then making that comparison and overlaying it with um, what minority groups are continually facing day in and day out. It just it's like it gave a, a, a comparison that wasn't there before and a, and a deeper understanding than they were able to, to have when it was sort of just out there in the ether and not something they personally had experienced. So in a way, it's functioning as both a kind of shared experience that everybody can draw upon and also then this metaphor that you can use to uh, help people understand more what it's like to be isolated in other ways or marginalized in other ways. The social isolation that we're experiencing now seems to amplify uh, what we might call affirmation bias. You know, the idea that um, we believe everybody else is experiencing the virus uh, the same way we are or not being exposed to others' experiences as much due to that social isolation kind of reinforces that. It takes a little extra effort to see this whole experience through somebody else's eyes or 
even stop to think, oh, that might not be the same for everybody or everybody's kids or everybody's families because we're so wrapped up in our own worlds and how we're going to get through it uh, in our own lives. It's so true. And I think those of us who are creating quote unquote solutions or support have an extra burden of trying to take ourselves out of our own situation and understand the situation of others to make sure that those solutions and support really hit on the mark instead of just being what what worked for us. So I think we also have approached it programmatically, too, and there's something to be said for that as well. Um, For example, during COVID, we recognized that in different parts of the world, the cultural expectations that were put onto women were really taking a toll on the women in the workplace for um, for us. And it was Hyderabad, an India office that we were focused on. And um, we had a really kind of fun, but um, at the same time impactful campaign that we started that we um, said balance the load. And we just kind of brought that topic of um, what is a cultural norm that we just take for granted or don't really talk about and, and brought it out and said the cultural norm that women in Hyderabad typically are the caretakers for their home, for their family, et cetera, and then being at home all day and trying to get work done is really burning them out. And if we can talk about it, um, and, and I think it helps to alleviate not only does it help with the simulation aspect, but it helped alleviate the loneliness that that could cause, that isolation we were talking about earlier, that they were experiencing this. And so we um, ha- we challenged people to show how they were going to balance the load at home. I mean, certainly you can't go to your coworker's house and help them with the caretaking responsibilities they had, but you can experience it yourself and empathize in a different way. And so we had people make a pledge to balance the load in their own homes. And then they put pictures up of themselves serving tea to their family when they happen to identify as male. And that's typically something that the female in their family would be doing. Um, and again, it was kind of fun and, and a bit cheeky, but it also helped people to to bring home that experience of like, wow, that was really hard to make sure the tea was out at the same time that I've got a limited amount of time before my next Zoom call is happening, et cetera. Yeah, so that's an example of how you can practically implement this reflective piece intentionally in the workplace, both now and as we return. And so I think that's a good um, transition to looking at some of the things that we can do as we return to work gradually in person and think about the future and ways that we can build in this intentionality and reflection and what other kinds of strategies we can use. Right. So getting back to normal, whatever that means, what does that look like? What are strategies that people will try or are already trying? I think that we have so much goodness that we can um, carry forward from what we've experienced here with the, if we have that intentionality with it. Um, and we, one of the things I'm very proud of at F5 is we put on some panels for folks to talk about what has this experience been like 
to be um, have increased caretaking and to be isolated when maybe there's no one else in your household. And both panels organically talked about mental health. And I think that that's something that has been something of a taboo, coming a little bit off of that and, and becoming more normalized, but really not as normalized as it has been during the COVID crisis. And and that's, I think, it, something that the bell has been rung, and, and I don't think it will be unrung now, is that we talk about these kinds of things that maybe we didn't talk about before. Um, I think the way that our personal life and our professional life is blurred um, during this crisis is probably going to persist afterwards, is that our new normal or next normal is going to have more of a blurred line between those two. You know, on the one hand, I see that as a very strong thing, a very good thing, right? We see each other for more of our whole selves. You know, that old idea, bring your whole self to work, or the people that feel the most sense of belonging at work are the ones who can express more of themselves at work. And so this seems like a good thing. My question is, is there a potential for sliding backward because we're seeing more blurring of our professional and personal lives? In other words, maybe there's some Con- more confining gender roles that are amplified, more traditional um, ways that we're supposed to be that are penalizing people who show more of themselves. You see uh, the background in a Zoom call, kids coming to sit on your lap during a meeting, or just some interesting personal information that seeps in because we're all working this way. Is there a danger? Yeah. And I think another uh, group that is experiencing that kind of um, sort of risk and vulnerability in, as we get more detailed looks into people's lives are um, LGBTQ folks or people who are in same-sex kind of relationships. They also – who are not perhaps identified or out at work and then suddenly are thrust into this reality where people are brought into their more personal lives. And I think that's important to think about as well. And I, I'm also curious, Mary, how uh, people have responded to the panels or – you know, what has been the outcomes from the panels or any challenges that have resulted from them? It's interesting because it played two two roles. One is if you weren't experiencing that particular issue of increased caretaking or um, being isolated or feeling isolated um, because there's no one else in your, your household, you opened your brain up to a different perspective and that simulation we were talking about. And then if you were experiencing that, and this is what I got a lot of, is you almost assumed that it was just you that was dealing with that issue. And when they heard a story like that, they identified themselves as it. And I received a a bunch of emails of thank you because I just feel like a little less alone right now knowing that there are other people, which is great on my end because I think that a lot of these problems don't have a clear solution for them other than empathy and understanding and grace and support. And so um, I, I can't give a programmatic answer to how to entertain your baby while trying to get work done. I don't have an answer for that one, right? I wish I did. You know, I think one of the other things we are doing, though, in this experiment to try to understand another perspective is uh, the inclusive design and persona creation. And so as we've looked at how do we return to the workplace in a way that's going to be seen as fair, equitable, and compassionate, we've 
created personas but intentionally created them looking at what would traditionally be called fringe cases. And instead of kind of tossing them out as, oh, that's so few people, we're just going to toss this to the side because we've been looking at it as a bell curve and we really want to get that average person. When we look at the fringe cases and we change our mindset to thinking of it as a spectrum and solving for the ends of that spectrum, encapsulate those along the spectrum line, um, then we create a much more compassionate, inclusive uh, design of returning back to the workplace. So we've been experimenting with that at F5 as well. And it is an experiment. I can't say what we're doing it well or perfect, but yeah, trying. So this idea of personas is is to create um, profiles of folks? How, how do you describe it? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah, the, it is something we borrowed from design thinking and so from our product creators and owners of creating a profile um, and giving it a person's name and personifying a like archetype into this person. And then we utilize those personas as we begin to develop the products. Um, they are our user group and our use cases. And then at the end, also as a um, somewhat of a focus group to say, okay, let's run it through the persona of Anne. Has, have we met what we think would be Anne's needs? And it doesn't replace getting you know, employee feedback through surveys or running actual focus groups, but it does augment the process and augment the, the data and information you might collect in those ways. And actually, so that's really interesting as well, because I think um, designing for the extremes, like you were talking about, and catching everything in the middle really harkens back to, or reminds me of um, some of the stuff Kimberly Crenshaw talked about in her very original article on intersectionality. That this was her main, one of her main points was that, you know, black women were being left out of the legal solutions because they were sort of targeted at the middle um, or the, you know, at, at white women who were, um, having more of these uh, sort of middle ground experiences and less extreme experiences than women of color. And if instead we took um, the more extreme experiences and designed solutions around them, that they would also um, be more effective at capturing the range of experiences and being more inclusive in that way. And at the same time, we're going to get it wrong. We're going to forget something, right? We're going to have a blind spot. And we have to be open to that uh, fact that at some point someone's going to mention something to us and we're going to have to say, we didn't consider that. Yeah. That's also such an important point. Making it okay to make mistakes goes along with that sort of intentionality, reflection, and sense of vulnerability. And we should note that, you know, in addition to people who don't have access or, or remote working and have difficulties there, there are some people who aren't working at all. And and while we're focusing on social isolation in tech for people who are working remotely, we also want to definitely recognize there are people who have lost their jobs and are isolated in that way. It's a very different situation, as well as people who have indeed contracted the virus and must social isolate for health reasons as well. We don't want to forget about those folks. So isolation is detrimental to our health. Let's put that up front, right? In many ways, uh, at many levels, and the longer it goes on, the, the more detrimental it may be. We are, after all, social animals, and we depend on each other and that social connection for our health, our mental health as well, and for living our lives the way that we do. On the other hand, this social isolation also invites us to introspection you know, in many ways that might 
make us more inclusive or build more inclusive cultures for us all. So yeah, I think we've touched on a number of things. No magic formula solutions, right? Um, no programmatic answers necessarily, but a few um, key like orientations or habits of mind that will help as we return to work. And those include, you know, things that we've talked about, including reflection, intentionality, empathy, and compassion. And as we like to say at NCWIT, a spirit of inquiry into what people are experiencing and really um, having those explicit conversations. So that, I think, is a good segue into what more specifically can we do um, as we return to work. At NCWIT, we talk a lot about the importance of attending to and interrupting everyday bias. And that involves, I think, looking at new biases as they emerge. And one of those is sort of kind of veiled in this language about uh, we're all in this together, right? And so, sure, there's a time and place to um, celebrate that camaraderie or to have that collaborative spirit that we are all in this together. But there is also a place importance for kind of challenging that sentiment and questioning it and kind of every time you hear it, are we? Or to what extent are we all in this together? And that's one very simple way because we hear it all the time, right? We're hearing that phrase all the time. And so I think just stopping in our tracks and asking some questions about that when we hear it. Yeah, what individuals can do, right? Seek to understand the experience of our colleagues and their families. Uh, that means employing that spirit of inquiry and taking the time to ask and, of course, just to listen. Yeah, if I can kind of show off F5 again, I think we uh, had a really great practical, easy answer um, to get the ball rolling, which was we brought our managers together on a call and and shared that exact saying about um, we're all in this together and, and can we think of it instead as we're all in the same storm but we have our own boat and how do you um, how do you find out more about the individual needs of your employees? And we gave them some starter questions to get going, because I do think that when you ask somebody, "How are you? How are you doing?" There's this. It's such a common phrase that the inclination on the other end of it is to go fine. Sometimes they're gritted teeth and not really doing fine. And so, how do we get beyond that surface question? And so, one of the things we gave them, for example, was just to say, "What's different for you since COVID?" began. What's going on for you? And um, our, our landing advice at the end was, and if all else fails, if you still haven't gotten some good insight from your employee about how you can support them and what they need, start disclosing for yourself. You know, Be vulnerable to them and say, what has changed for you since COVID began? And, and the reciprocity will likely happen after that. Yeah, I think those questions are so important, uh, expressing like a sincere desire to know what people are really experiencing. And it reminds me of this uh, campaign that uh, has been out there for a little while now, the How Are You Really, I, I believe you can go to howareyoureally.org. It's done by the Mental Health Coalition. And uh, it's this whole idea of what you just said about just the sort of um, typical how are you question. But this is emphasizing that, no, I really want to know. And um, there's a campaign around it. And it's an interesting, I think, um, strategy for addressing exactly what you're talking about. And then I think there are some other practical things that organizations and leaders can do in terms of this, um, these kinds of questions that you're asking. And change leaders, like we said earlier, have a real role to play here and to take the lead in personally checking in 
with direct reports and opening up that conversation about particular needs during this time. And those having those conversations will help you identify different policies and other kinds of steps you can take. But some of these we know to be um, likely to be effective are ensuring adequate access to paid sick leave policies, letting people take time off without penalty, and making sure that there's no stigma when they do so, providing translation services where needed, also providing financial and emotional support to employees and their families who are hit um, most hard by these kind of, these circumstances. And um, also, again, as we've alluded to before, ensuring all employees have access to remote work technologies and flexible work processes. Yeah, and times, they are changing. So right now here at the end of May 2020, we're, we're seeing some of the social distancing orders being eased, some businesses opening up and, and people starting to emerge, even while the virus is still marching on and on the increase, especially in the United States. So it may be a time that's more stressful, even more stressful and dangerous for those with vulnerable health status or vulnerable family members. So that idea of being flexible and conscientious about ongoing risk rather than just expecting a hasty return to normal is is good advice as well. Yeah, the only thing that came to mind for me though is like we're saying we're saying the new normal or um, going back to normal and even that carries like a privilege with it of like what was the normal before and um, and I can't help but recognize since we're timestamping this too as May just the 2020, the activities that are happening in the U.S. against black Americans and how um, hard this of a time this is to overlay that on top. And when we even just saying the words um, going back to normal um, has to has to sting for that community, given that this is the normal they're living in right now. And that was the normal before as well. You know? Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And I think in so many ways, we don't want to go back to what was quote unquote normal. If we're intentional, we get to be the architects of the new normal, you know, the idea of having a culture by design rather than default or falling back into the ruts of our prior cultural interactions. We don't have to do that. And maybe abdicating the idea of normal at all. Mm. There is no normal. I like that. <laughs> the second suggestion is that going remote requires us to see each other with new eyes. As we said, in tech, many of us are, are used to working remotely, but now more of us than ever are doing so, and we're doing it more often. So like we said, on video calls, we're now seeing much more of each other's lives and catching perhaps surprising glimpses of someone's home and their other identities in the background. So seeing many more of these intersecting identities is causing us to blur traditional boundaries between our personal and professional lives. It's up to us to make this into a positive thing rather than a penalty thing. And as we've hinted at before, I think the first step in doing this is realizing that this uh, phenomenon introduces risk and vulnerability for certain populations more than others, especially for those who have been marginalized by race, gender, expression, sexual orientation, or anyone who in the past has not been able to bring as much of their full selves to work, 
but who now suddenly finds themselves in this reality where their homes and personal lives are more visible whether they want it or not. So like Brad said, that brings opportunity, but we first must recognize that hesitation. What individuals can do is to appreciate and learn about each other in new ways and see that kind of vulnerability not as a weakness, but as a faculty that invites us to a deeper understanding of our teams and perhaps ourselves in the process. And the tone for that can really be set by by leaders, change leaders, managers, directors, the leaders in the company. Yes. So it's especially powerful when it comes from the leaders because they have uh, the power to establish this sort of new way of being when we all return to work by modeling that and valuing the blurring of the personal and professional. And we think this can be, if done again, intentionally and with reflection, can be a significant step toward building more inclusive cultures, um, especially since these distinctions between the personal and professional have long been identified as a source of um, disadvantage for women and other groups. And I think I understand some of the hesitancy folks would have in being able to allow that full self um, fully forward in the future because there not only some of the other topics we've talked about in terms of the real risk it poses for folks, uh, there's also um, a lot we still aren't talking about and not admitting. And it does take being able to put those conversations onto the table, like I mentioned we're doing for mental health. So for example, are we willing in the United States to um, see that we have increased caretaking responsibilities for women? Or do we want to continue to say we've solved that problem, we don't need any more help in that space? And those kinds of messages get sent to women all the time, and those are telling us whether or not we can um, foray into that conversation with our our bosses, our colleagues, our teams, et cetera. And so I think the leader responsibility is not only in them bringing their full selves to work and them um, disclosing and being vulnerable and showing things about their personal life, but in how they respond when others do as well. Uh, And I think that's going to be a key factor in how intentional we build a, a new normal in the future. How do we train people for that? How do we include that in the expectations or performance reviews of manager material? You know, it's not something that we automatically come to the job with the way we've lived our compartmentalized lives uh, in the past. How do we blur intentionally? You know, it's. I think that the the biggest hindrance I see in being able to do that is the a leader not getting feedback about whether or not they actually are doing that. And I think we have a, a corporate culture that's widely adopted where you don't, the emperor has no clothes. You don't tell the leader that they're not doing the thing that they said they want to do and believe they're doing. And one of the things I try to practice in my sphere of, of power and influence is always asking the question, how could I have done that better? And um, when I make a decision and I share that decision with a group, I ask, um, tell me how I that could be wrong. Somebody play devil's advocate, and I want to invite the opposing viewpoint in for me to consider. Um, and I think that invitation into the making it okay to fail, making it okay to be wrong, making it okay to make mistakes is going to be a big part of that that training in the future. So it's just the invitational leadership or the, the re- requirement to be a learning leader and to learn from your mistakes, but also from the people that you are leading. 
But you're probably going to have to have explicit conversations with leaders that this is uh, expectation because whilst maybe some people naturally or were more inclined to do that beforehand, many were not, right? And they won't probably just magically pick that up. And so I think also in the sort of spirit of intentionality that we've been talking about, uh, making it clear to leaders that this is an actual expectation, a skill to develop. And I think we have to be culturally sensitive, too, as their hierarchy is is experienced and expected differently around the world. And it reminds me of a time I was giving a presentation about something close to this in uh, Tokyo in Japan. And um, someone just outright said, like, mm-hmm. that's really Western thinking. That's mm-hmm. not how we do things here. And I asked, well, how do you get feedback as a leader? And they said, I, t- I take you out to a bar and we get drunk and then you can tell me. <laughs> and I thought, okay, fine. Um, but I asked a couple of other leaders and they had some different answers. And so in that person's mind, they still had an archetype of just like the one way a leader should behave. And in discussing with other leaders, even in their their cultural context, they understood that the parameters were much larger than what they had in their own heads about what was acceptable. With so many companies being transnational, that point about um, being culturally sensitive and inclusive is is so important. And um, you know, as leaders get to interact with each other across cultural boundaries, I think there will be uh, a greater uh, leadership um, arrows in the quiver. You know, there'll be more things to do as a leader, more things to see. And I think that COVID is going to require us to accelerate that process to, you know, make sure we have more leadership tools and we apply the right tools to the right situation. Getting away from that old idea of my leadership style is this way in a one size fits all mentality. Uh, it seems antiquated even more than ever now. So it goes back to explicitly redefining what leadership looks like, which we've been trying to do for quite some time, and now we have more reasons to do so. (laughs) The third thing we can do is to be sure and create your new culture, whatever it looks like, by design rather than default. We've kind of hinted at this already, but... Think of it this way. Our experience of culture is a conversation between ourselves and the larger community we belong to. So given this crisis, that conversation is rapidly evolving and reshaping our cultures, whether we attend to this process or not. So we might as well attend to it. Now is the time to be intentional about how this happens. And it's especially important to be intentional because of the many changes we are experiencing that have the potential to either exacerbate existing inequalities and amplify those things, or they could be opportunities for creating more equitable norms. You know, take uh, flexible work arrangements, for example. Businesses are adopting more of them, but initial studies show that so far they tend to reproduce inequalities. Right. So, for example, a survey by Cindio showed that 14% of women are considering quitting their jobs because of the family demands created by the COVID crisis, as compared to only 11% of men considering the same. And similarly, 10% of men reported that their partner or spouse was considering quitting, while only 6% of women had that same answer. And um, other studies show this as well. A poll by Morning Consult found that 70% of women say they're fully or mostly responsible for housework during the lockdown, and 66% say that they're fully responsible for childcare. And this is actually similar to the pre-COVID um, research on this topic, but the 
hours required to be fully responsible have increased by quite a bit, as given the prior stats that we just talked about. And also, um, this study showed that in households where both parents were working remotely full-time, 28% of women and 19% of men said they were working less than usual due to increased care responsibilities. So this just shows that without that intentionality, we're on the track to potentially reproduce inequalities and reify these kind of gender norms without, if we don't start becoming more intentional reflection, reflect on this. Now, however, while the overall burden currently appears to fall more heavily on mothers, the current situation has made it so that there are more fathers who now have to take primary responsibility for childcare. <laughs> I'm one of them. Uh, and past research shows these kinds of trends can help erode social norms. For example, a study out of Columbia University shows that when both women and men take parental leave, childcare more equitably gets distributed as the child grows up. Right. So even while there is sort of danger in some of the dynamics that are happening, there is a tremendous opportunity in rethinking how we um, blur the personal and professional and reconstruct these gender norms. And so bringing it back to what we all can do at the workplace is, again, enter that conversation, uh, falls again to change leaders in particular to start the conversation um, by, you know, fronting maybe how they are handling these kinds of dynamics. Also goes to kind of what you were saying, Mary, about the balance the load campaign and making those kinds of um, gender dynamics and uh, workload inequities visible. And so I think it begins with talking about those experiences, sharing those mutual experiences, different experiences that we have, and then really uh, having an on-point discussion about what are changing norms and values are and what we want them to be. Right. And a great example of that is uh, the adjustments being made now to improve remote work can be preserved to support your workplace after this crisis is is over mostly you know likewise the work done to see each other with a spirit of inquiry see each other with new eyes can help us establish those new norms that enable us to bring more of ourselves to work in a safe way and to remain more curious and caring about each other's lives as we go forward it's redefining potentially our workplace culture and tech I think there's an opportunity here for us to to think about the COVID crisis as no longer something we have to persevere through or make it through because that's very taxing and makes it is automatically setting our brains up to think about when it's over it goes back and and because we've made it through and to get into that creative open space of letting go of the past and creating a new normal in the future, we really do have to to take that collective breath together and let it go, let go what it was before, and, and, and enter that creative space asking ourselves why continuously. That's what I hope the the listeners get from this is that they take that breath today and venture into the creative space now. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast. To learn more about building more inclusive cultures in tech, check out our Tech Inclusion Journey online platform, which helps organizations think strategically about creating um, cultures that address the kinds of things we've talked about today. And we've designed this powerful tool for change leaders like you. 
And be sure to check out our other Tech Culture Interrupted podcast episodes on inclusive culture construction, wherever podcasts are found, or through our website at the National Center for Women in IT, which is NCWIT, ncwit.org. And several people we'd like to thank today. First of all, of course, Mary Fairchild from F5. Thanks so much for being here, Mary. Thanks for having me and getting a break in my social isolation today. I appreciate it. And also to Coop Studios and Taylor Marvin, our sound engineer, Aaron Lasko and Eric Singer, producers, Daniel Sproul, who created our theme music. And from NC Wit, we'd like to thank our CEO, Lucy Sanders, and our CTO and president, Terry Hogan, as well as Adrian Bradbury and Sierra Kelly, our crack communication team, who also designed our logo. And to all of you listeners and change leaders, until next time.